If you look up the word meditation in a dictionary, it says the process of using the mind to think. It's embracing the actions and the faculty of the mind to think, to discern, to reflect, to put together a series of feelings and thoughts and sensations and information and come up with some type of a conclusion and an experience. Well, that hadn't been my approach to meditation. Welcome to Emotional Sobriety. We're at the end of another year with Alan, Dr. Alan Berger, and uh, our amazing uh, producer, uh, Patrick Newman. And we have a very, very special guest today. God, you and I go back 38 years now, is it? Actually, it'll be 39 in February. Look at that. My goodness. Oh yeah. my God! You guys have been together longer than Dee Dee and I have been. It's like we, <laughs> yeah. we're 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 getting up there, but we're not. Yeah, you guys are longer than us. Yeah, we're dinosaurs. Sometimes I even feel like one. I mean, well, a lot of times. Uh, well, that's, that's, yeah. You know? yeah. Yeah, but you know, it, it's it's just by way of an introduction. Those of you that don't know Herb Kagan, um, first of all, he's a dear friend of mine, and and you know has been a fellow traveler, colleague, and an explorer of emotional sobriety now for, I'd say, about two and a half decades, Herb. We yeah. started doing workshops together and, and up and down Southern other California, actually. I mean, we were up in Santa Barbara, San Diego, a bunch of workshops in the LA area. And, you know, we've just found that that his love and interest in in recovery and in the 12 steps and helping people take that journey and my love and interest in emotional sobriety just created a great pairing right and it it's just turned into a, a hell of a collaboration and and an inspiration and you've helped thousands and thousands of people with the steps and and carrying this great message of emotional sobriety and helping us deepen our understanding of it so thank you so much for all you do and and I speak on the behalf of many, many thousands of people who've gotten so much from your work. Well, Amen. I, I, I thank you so much for the compliments, of course. And um, everything you said is true. Uh, I appreciate <laughs> that. <laughs> um, I have the humility to say thank you. And I fortunately now have the humility to not take credit for it. Um, I take credit for cooperation. That's and and having yeah. the, you you you've used a, a word currently that has intrigued me. I've had the curiosity. Yeah, I've had the curiosity. I, since I was eleven or twelve years old, I've had some sense of longing, some sense of question, some sense of uh, journey and curiosity, and um, that took me to a monastery in, when I was seventeen years old. Uh, exploring some type of spiritual dimension as I understood it in a very limited way at 17. Of course, having a uh, mother who is a daily mass goer, Catholic tradition, in the best of senses, very balanced, not a, not a crazy religious addict of any kind, a very balanced and sensible and consistent way of looking at the world and her relationship with God. And she began to teach me about prayer. And I got real interested. <laughs> I became the, an altar boy, of course. And then mm -hmm. I became president of the altar boys, of course. There's omens, <laughs> omens, omens going. Only Alan can really appreciate that uh, <laughs> uh, in terms of my own history and journey. Um, and so in uh, 1964, I left that monastery. Seven years, I was there wearing a black robe 
silent for seven years, being taught about meditation, meditating and having this wonderful connection to and affinity for the quiet and the camaraderie of the mon of the monks in the monastery and practicing and practicing and practicing and reading and as passionate about it as I am fortunately that's a built into the system I guess about most mm -hmm. things but I left mm -hmm. in 1964 and I hung out my black robe in 1964 and I didn't meditate again for another 25 years well, what's that? Well, that's the person who took a value from the outside and put on a black robe. And when you are a monk, you meditate. Yeah. Well, when you take the black robe off, you're not a monk, so you don't meditate. I mean, yeah. I look back on it now and it's that simplistic. Of course, it wasn't at that time and nor was it okay. clear at all. No, nor was it clear at all. For some reason, I discovered, and it's a story for a different day that I was an alcoholic in 1984. I came into the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous and I did all the drill and I'm not going to go into all of the different aspects of that, but I was a good AA person, meeting, sponsor, book study, step studies, all of the drill. Did those first, did the uh, 12 steps in my first year. And now I'm not meditating. Somehow I didn't ever really connect with the whole purpose of the 12 steps, which is a spiritual awakening, but because I didn't have really good guidance, I'm not blaming, I'm just explaining. Um, I didn't work the steps in any impactful way. Um, I, I have a lot of information. And the man who met me in 1988 said that. He said, Herb, you have a, a, a lot of information, but you have no transformation. If you're not looking at me, <laughs> that I just en uh, encompassed my head with my hands and then moved my hands to my heart. And he mm -hmm. said, you have got a lot of academic knowledge, but very little authentic mm -hmm. spiritual human behavior. Mm -hmm. He said, quite frankly, you think you're a, Nea uh, uh, a renaissance man, you're actually a Neanderthal. Now, this is four years sober. I'm asking this man for help. I know he's the guy because he's like Alan. I mean, he tells you the truth. He's kind, but he's not mm -hmm. one bit interested in your feelings about right. the truth as he tells it. And so uh, I, I, I fell in love with Alan when I first met him. He's a Marine. He pretends to be a psychologist, but he's really a Marine. <laughs> and he doesn't take any prisoners, but he's kind in the process. But uh, fortunately helped begin to my healing process along with the AA and the not drinking. It all works together. But in 1988, this man who confronted me with my delusion about a Renaissance man brought me through the steps out of the big book and <clears throat> came to step 11. Well, I mean, I'm a monk. I mean, I'm a theologian. These are all delusions because I'm certainly not a monk. <laughs> Poverty, chastity, and obedience were very distant thoughts in my mind and practice. Um, but when he got to step 11 in the big book, uh, he, he helped me understand it. He said, read it and highlight it, which I did. He said, then outline it. Well, it's really interesting, two and a half pages the best description of how to meditate, why to meditate, and the value of meditation that I've ever come across before or after. 
but it's not that clear to me when I read it, even though I have the information and I'm reasonably intelligent, fairly well educated, uh, I couldn't unpack it. And I found that with each of the steps. This man who had the clarity seemed to put one of those coal miners hats on my head with the little light in the front and have each sentence open up and I could understand what it said, but only in the light of his experience as he journeyed me through each paragraph, each sentence and each word. And so I'm gonna make this really short and simple and then we can go on from there because it's the best kept secret in the rooms from a meditation standpoint. It says, we ask God to direct our thinking. If you look up the word meditation in a dictionary, it says the process of using the mind to think. It's embracing the actions and the faculty of the mind to think, to discern, to reflect, to put together a series of feelings and thoughts and sensations and information and come up with some type of a conclusion and an experience. Well, that hadn't been my approach to meditation. I had come up through the monastery, which is contemplation, Then I had shifted into becoming a dilettante Buddhist and studying their way of life, which is contemplation. But it's not meditation. Meditation is the use of the mind to think, and the big book acknowledges that. Bill was trained in the Oxford group about meditation, and the purpose of meditation was to receive guidance. We ask God to direct our thinking, this man said, repeating what the big book says. And he said, it goes like this, Herb. God, please direct my thinking. (laughs) And I hope you're all laughing because, oh my God, could it be that simple? Yes, Mm -hmm. it's that simple. Of course, the assumption is about steps two and three and a God of our understanding, or as I like to say, a God of our not understanding. Mm -hmm. And I had blown by steps two and three because uh, I'm a monk, you know, but I blew by steps two and three and I I didn't have any problem with my belief that I believed, even though I was really a practical agnostic. Going back to meditation. We ask God to direct our thinking, then we begin thinking. The big book suggests we think about the 24 hours a day and we consider our plans for the day. I'm quoting. We think about the 24 hours ahead. I translate that as my activity. What am I going to do today? We consider our plans today. I translate that into, who am I going to be today? Yesterday, I was insensitive. Today, I want to be sensitive. Yesterday, I was distracted. Today, I want to be more mindful. So my answer to that question is a reflection of the character defect du jour from yesterday. I want to be a decent human being, and I want to make ever-increasing daily improvements in order to be able to do that. So I reflect on where I'm out of alignment with reality, there's the relationship to emotional sobriety. Emotional sobriety, from my standpoint, my interpretation, my Herb's definition, is an authentic relationship with reality as it is. A relationship with reality as it flows, as it manifests in the present moment. And accepting that and adjusting to that. Well, here's what's not in the big book, which was the key that unlocked the door to meditation for me. I'm forever grateful to this man who had no training, but he had an understanding and he had experience and he had a practice. So he was coming both from information and from a practice, uh, from experience. We ask God to direct our thinking. God, please direct my thinking. Then we begin thinking. We consider our plans for the day. Then here's the key. 
that's not in the big book, but allowed me to have a consistent meditation practice since 1988, every day. The key is we listen to our thinking as the conduit of the message from God. We ask God to direct our thinking, then we trust that what we think is in fact reflective of the message, the medium of the message is my brain, my thinking brain, my emotions, my sensations, anything that I'm conscious of in terms of my imagination and or my memory. And my job is to reflect on all of this data and see if there's sifting through it. Is this the message of God or is this the message of my ego? Fortunately, I've done a fourth step. So I'm pretty good at discerning and I've had a lot of therapy, and I was introduced to the nine characteristics of narcissism, which were very embarrassing because they were so true. I'm not sure Dr. Berger ever said it, but it sure makes a good story. When he gave me this list of the nine characteristics from the DSM, that's that diagnostic, diagnostic manual of the psychiatrist for personality disorders, she said, there's nine characteristics there. Take a look at that. And I took a look at it. I, was, I turned red, I'm sure, because I was embarrassed. <laughs> and, and he said, the only thing missing, Herb, is your picture. Now, it makes a great story. I'm not sure he ever did that. But it's, it could be that he could have said well, that. If, if, he, if he didn't, he, he missed an opportunity. Well, I, 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 I actually had a Polaroid camera. I took a picture. <laughs> I, I like how you tied this into emotional sobriety. Let me just take yeah. a minute. It's about I, consciousness. No, there, well, see, that's, see what, what I wanted to say is, see, you know, one of the things that stands out to me about emotional sobriety that we've talked a lot about and really I think is a key, you know, this alignment to the reality is a big part of it. But the way I'm thinking about it now is we are untethering ourselves. We don't realize the degree to which our life has been determined by a lot of forces that are outside of our awareness. Yeah. Things that drive us to to behave a certain way, to develop certain kind of self parts, to emphasize certain parts over at the expense of others. I mean, all of these things contribute to us forming, you know, this image of ourselves, right? You were calling it your ego, which I think is a, is another, is a good synonym for the false self, right? Yes. Oh, exactly. Right. It's, it's right. a great sin. So emotional sobriety is, is getting untethered, which means removing all of these conditions that we've placed on ourselves, on life, on reality, conditions that we believed must occur for us to be okay, for us to feel okay, for us to be able to, to feel good about life and to feel good about the experience we're having. And, and what I love about what you're saying about meditation is because there, the only way to get to that freedom is to become aware of how determined we are. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Pre- and, oh, and predetermined. And predetermined. Well, that's, there's, that's part of that determination. You're right. Like you said, you've got a gene in you that makes you a bald guy, a white bald guy. Me too. I've got that same gene. Yeah. That uh, that you know, I can put up Rogaine on my head, and I can get plugs put in, and all that to to struggle, you know, to fight with reality, trying to make it what I want it to be. But these things, these forces, are there, 
And the way we get free of, so I really love the way you talked about it is, is really observing our thinking. Yes. Listening to our thinking. What is it telling us? And there's a reason it comes at step 11, isn't there? Like you said, early on, there's going to be a lot of confounding or conflation with the false self. So it's only as we start to differentiate ourselves and in, as Bill calls it, strive to have the best possible attitude towards ourself in life that we start to get to see the difference between when our ego is talking, right? And then when the best of us is talking, but this is, it's an exciting thing, Herb. Tell us about the book that you wrote with Hazleton, because I think people, it's really an outstanding contribution to this area. Thank you. Uh, the title doesn't really do it justice, I believe, but I didn't have a hand in that because Hazleton was the publisher practicing the here and now. The subtitle has the word meditation in it. And in discussing it with the editor that was my guardian through the process of writing the book, we, we said, you know, there's a lot of books on meditation. There's a lot of books on the steps. In fact, I've written uh, some of the books on med- on, on the steps. Um, what, what's going to be different about this book? What's going to give it a little bit of a, this is something worth reading because it's got a unique turn on it. And I said, well, most people don't understand meditation at all. So there needs to be a chapter the, at the beginning to express what are prayer? What is uh, meditation? What is contemplation? What is mindfulness? What is um the the various methods of uh, of consciousness and uh but then maybe taking a look at each of the steps through the lens of meditation coming to step one powerlessness through the lens of power coming to step two with a brand new lens as to challenging yourself about your preconditions predetermination prejudice about God or spirit or higher power or higher self and 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 use the process of meditation to open the mind, open the heart, to take to deliver you to an experience that you've never had, to deliver you to a place of knowledge um, about something and an experience with this consciousness practice that that you've not had before. And so that's the the tone and the nature of the book, going through each of the steps with the lens of uh, meditation in terms of using that mechanism of the thinking person, but informed, meaning informed by the spirit, so that the combination of the spirit and my own discernment will deliver me to a place I didn't even know exist. Uh, you were you were mentioning about uh, the forces that we connect to that predetermine some of our thoughts, some of our feelings, some of our behavior that we're unconscious of. And my image of that, I love images. I do workshops that helps people kind of put into pictures the words that I'm using, because sometimes the words get a little complex, but it's like a puppet on strings. Now, the point of the fourth step that really helped me is it was my my ball of string that I tied to events, that I tied to circumstances, that I tied to people. And I'm like now a, a puppet connected to a puppeteer and circumstances and people 
and events are determining how I behave, how I feel, and what my attitude is. But I'm blaming them because they're holding the strings. But it's my string. And I tied the strings to them, or at least as an adult I have. Uh, but it's that combination of nurture and nature, of course. No, it's, it's, it's a good image because I'm sitting here just thinking about each of those strands represent a different force in our life, don't they? hundred percent. You know, yeah. you think about one of them is our desire to please and cooperate with our parents. I mean, that hooks us into a lot. Another strand is the ideas they gave us about who we are and, and, and you know, who we should be and stuff. Then culture's got a big strand in it. How culture defines what's acceptable, what's not in terms of as a person, as behavior, I mean, there's so many influences, which I think is, it's a really interesting thing because, you know, we've, one of the big themes this last year, thanks to Tom, has been this real emphasis on looking at emotional sobriety as a practice. Mm -hmm. Really thinking about this is it, it's an unfolding of a consciousness, right? It doesn't just happen. It's happening, right? It's it's just an ongoing process that goes on. And some of those strings I, I wasn't even aware of even after four or five decades of recovery right. until I started to apply a curiosity mainly to the things that upset me and started to try to really unpack what's going on here. But that's the, the to me, that, that's kind of the good news and the bad news, right? Is is you're not going to get get this. It's not a one and done deal, right? It's not you're going to get up right. and hit a home run. You're going to get up and you're going to keep swinging at the ball. Sometimes you're going to get a hit. Sometimes, look, if you bat, you know, three hundred, you're a Hall of Famer in baseball, right? <laughs> I mean, same for us, right? If we're doing that well, if we just are striving for that progress, there's an amazing amount of things that happen. Well, you know that you've been coming on Thursday nights. You hear these people sharing what it's meant to them to be exposed to these ideas and how people are finding a freedom here that's, that they haven't discovered before in the program. I, I think one of the things that, that I had not thought of it in just this way until you just said that, Alan, but, but it, in terms of the practice, you know, the, we had our different ways of doing it, but I used to sell a t-shirt that just says practice makes practice. And it's, it's, uh, and, you know, and, and Patrick and I've talked about this before, you know, you don't exercise one time and then say, well, good, I'm good shape. Now you don't brush your teeth one time and say, well, my teeth are brushed. You know, we, we, uh, we do understand the whole, the whole essence of practice because we do it all the time. You know, we bathe, we brush our teeth, we, you know, we take out the garbage, we do all these things. And it's like, there's nothing different about this. And I think one of the things, because of the, the staying power of this Thursday night group that, you know, that you began, you know, as a temporary measure, you know, for those two or three weeks that we were going to need it <laughs> when COVID hit. And it became, it became clear, I think pretty early for all of us that, that, that it wasn't going anywhere, but it is a practice. It is a practice. It is a part of my practice to show up for, for the Thursday meeting. Right. And, uh, and I'm not perfect at it, but I'm pretty damn good at it. Uh, 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 but and and I think that we demonstrate by doing that. But they also, by coming back, actually get the experience of, of being involved in this group practice. And, right. it, and it really does not only teach the concept, but it actually is a demonstration. And it's, you know, and in my, in my book on called what love is, you know, one of my favorite lines in there is just if love is not demonstrated, then it's not love. 
And, you know, and if, and if this is, if, if recovery is not practiced, it's not recovery. You're right. It's just concept. Mm. Well, Can I ask them um, uh, when you're working with people um, and you encounter resistance to the unfolding, to consciousness, to uh, alignment with reality, um, have there been any revelations you've had um, maybe not even just recently, but over the course of your career um, about, you know, where does that resistance come from? How can it be overcome? Um, because yeah, that's, there's great power that, you know, that comes with doing the practice, but getting somebody there um, can be an ordeal. That's a really good question because mm -hmm. I would say the majority of the problem in recovery is the resistance to it. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm assuming even, even when we want it, See, this is one of the things. This is one of the, the things. I don't know if it's new, but it's a new angle I have on it. And Alan, I think I've talked to you about it a little bit. Is I, I have just become so aware of how clear at, at my age, through this many years of recovery, that how clear I am on what wisdom is. And not that I'm always wise, but what I can recognize wisdom. And, and, and there is a, there is a wise voice in me that, you know, that, that speaks, whether that's the radio through which God is speaking, or it's the wisest part of me, I don't know. But here's what I know. The wisest, wisest part of me can speak very clearly. He never, he's not nearly as verbose. That, that character is not nearly as verbose as I am. He's, he's very direct, very, very concise. He can tell me something to do that I know is right. And if I do it, I will be better. And then I will resist it hmm. vehemently. Sometimes heels dug in. It's like, and I can know that I'm doing it, but I still do it. Yeah, it is fascinating that process, isn't it? It is. Mm -hmm. oh, it's so true. The image, no, I, the image I use for it. I'm sorry, Alan. Did I interrupt? You? No, well, I want to know your image. <laughs> you know, let me let me just say this. See, I, I think that there's some things that that are worked on perpetually, right? That we're going to mm -hmm. have to be, yeah. I like the phrase Herb uses with this, is stay gently pressed up against it with a ton of compassion and understanding and curiosity. If you bring Perfect. that to that, you know, you can you can turn some of these things around that were really mm -hmm. impediments and, and causing a lot of trouble in your life. Like, you know, you talked about how early on in your life, you were very narcissistic, Herb. That's, I mean, you, you wouldn't even qualify for the diagnosis today. I mean, we, you, you might not even be in the DSM. <laughs> I mean, you got, you got kicked out of the DSM, Herb. <laughs> got thrown out of another bar, right? Yeah, <laughs> I mean, really. Like yeah. the Andrew bar. That's a good one to get thrown out of. <laughs> but, but see, I mean, these things change. You know, they used to say, if you have a personality disorder, it's never going to change. Right. AA has blown up so many of those concepts that psychiatry had, in my yeah. opinion. Yeah. I have seen people turn their lives around in amazing ways. Because, you know, one of the things I've always said about Bill Wilson, he was a humanist. He had a lot of faith in the human yeah. spirit. Mm -hmm. And I look at that came from William James. I know that he inherited some of that, mm -hmm. some from Jung, some from some of the other great minds that he was, you know, studying with and, and reading from, you know, reading their literature and stuff like that. But, but, you know, so some of the problems we're going to just be grinding with the rest of our life there are a few things that can be turned around you know and that you're going to be pretty much finished with it 
right? There's some stuff that's going to be mm-hmm. of that nature, you know, that you're going to be able to take care of that. Like, for example, if you have an amends to make right. that has been on your mind for a long time and you do a thorough job, you finish your business with that. Yeah. And when you finish your business, it's done. You move on. There are things you're going to have that are unfinished business that you can finish and move on with. So that's the exciting thing about recovery. It really embraces both, right? The unfinished business and and the stuff that's going to be perpetual in our life that we're going to be constantly grinding with and dealing with. And please don't judge yourself for that. Understand that's part of you, our nature, Right. When we talk about what our nature is, there's stuff that we that we can finish and get done with. And there's stuff that's going to just going to be with us the rest of our life. But we can have a different relationship with. Well, and that's the point of step 10, which I consider the the tool of emotional sobriety. Um, Bill says in the 12 and 12 in step 10, it's a spiritual axiom. Whenever I'm disturbed, there's something wrong with me. Right. And he says in step 10 in the big book, uh, basically reinforcing what you just said, he said, watch for resentment and fear and dishonesty and selfishness when they crop up. Not if, Not when if. they crop up. We will never transcend our humanity. We will have these instincts. Now, the emotional sobriety is about self-regulation and have and meditation is about having the consciousness to be able to be empowered to self-regulate. Uh, the image that I was going to use was the, that dimmer switch. When you said, you know, we need to stay gently pressed up against it. it it's against the dimmer switch, the, 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 the knob that allows the light to go up a notch at a time is hardwired to go backwards. That's our human nature. We will disintegrate if, in fact, we're not intentionally, gently pressed up against becoming a better person. The dimmer switch goes up a notch at a time, but it goes down a notch at a time, and it's on a greased axle. So my image is I lean into the dimmer switch, Mm -hmm. pushing it gently forward so that it doesn't go backwards. And um, just reminded of a statement by uh, Tebow, uh, yeah. he said, Bill got it right. Those first nine steps are for the deflation of the ego at depth, but the ego has an uncanny way of regenerating itself. I love that. Yeah. Isn't that fabulous? Because yeah. it just captures this whole thing about mm-hmm. emotional sobriety. And that is, I need to deal with my humanity on a regular basis. And I can do that with the best in me that deals with the worst in me to quote you, of course. Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, So there's a wonderful phrase that the bantered around in circles of human development and or spirituality. And that is, are we human beings? A A question seeking a spiritual experience, or are we spiritual beings seeking a human experience? And after weeks of discernment and meditation, my answer is yes. Mm-hmm. We yeah. are. We are spiritual mm-hmm. beings seeking a human experience and human beings seeking a yeah. spiritual experience. Right. One of the medieval philosophers, and I know I think I've quoted this before in one of our workshops, but it's just so funny. It's come to me in this last year, and I studied it 60 years ago, for God's sakes. But it, uh, one of the medieval philosophers says this in tongue-in-cheek. He says, oh, yeah, we're angels that shit. <laughs> I like that. I like that. 
<laughs> well, listen, we 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 did once. This, this is the end of the year. We talked about it before. Why don't each of us go around and say what stood out in this past year for us about emotional sobriety? What was kind of the what your headliner for the year on emotional sobriety? So, Patrick, why don't you start us out? Well, my girlfriend moved in. Uh, my girlfriend of uh, that's that enough said. Yeah, three years. <laughs> Three years coming up on four. And um, now that I have a witness, more of like a present witness to my life, I'm I'm integrating somebody else uh, into my uh, daily life more uh, intimately. And the ideas I have about myself and who I'm supposed to be are um, regularly coming to conflict, conflict with the way things actually are. And uh, if I can approach that with humility, um, which I get about 50% of the time, um, then I learn more about myself and I'm able to stay grounded and um, come into myself a little bit more. Um, but uh, when I don't approach these differences with humility, things go sideways. And um, I've, I've had moments with, that, that have positively reinforced me and moments that have really gotten me down, but um, I'm still in it and uh, I'm feeling really good about the relationship coming into 2023 so hope i can keep learning and sticking around you guys well stay it's not even hope just to be determined to keep learning and and uh relationships are mirrors and you just installed a really huge beautiful mirror in your life and and she has too i mean it goes both ways you have critters running around your place like i do in my place so <laughs> i identify thank you tom i am on a path now of discipline of, of learning about discipline and where I, a year ago, I probably just, just fairly comfortably excused my lack of discipline. And, uh, because I'm not, it's not, it's not a strong suit of mine. And, uh, and I don't, I think I didn't take it seriously. And I think I was, I think I know today that I was on the run from that. It's uh, and I am not as I've, we're talking today. I am not. I am. I am including uh, some very important, specific things about discipline in my my daily practice. Uh, it's um, it's 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 kind of good to have a challenge that is there's nothing. It's not easy at all, and it, it's like. But I feel I really feel solid about it. And 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 this group, our, your our, this group of the four of us sitting here now, or uh, uh, five of five, four. How many others? There's four of us here. There's One, four. Two, three, four. Okay. There. You know, math. Math. I'm not doing well at. By the way, but uh, but it's it's this and the Thursday group uh in total is has been has been a part of that so i thank you all because it's um uh, life is good well the uh, for me the um exposure to emotional sobriety as a focus and as a subject to learn about has been what i don't know alan we've been doing it for several years now in terms of unpacking the letter but now it's got much more formalized in terms of a focus on the steps originally in this uh, thursday meeting as well as then the focus on the uh, the self-esteem issue um, and I've become very, very conscious in the workshops that I do that the self-esteem issue is way bigger than I had ever realized it was in terms of, uh, call it so many words for it, but the, the, the one word that's stepping out into my vocabulary 
as the the major synonym for all of the words is low self-worth, a, a, a lack of personal sense of value and worthiness. And I was never really conscious of it in those words, a sense of lack of worthiness. People don't feel worthy enough to get well even. Even though they're suffering, they there's some mechanism yeah. that... Uh, Oh, anyway, I won't go into that. That, yeah. but so that's been really, really helpful, um, and that's my project for this coming year: is to really embrace and expand my connection to an understanding and a way to articulate it about self worth and self esteem. On the other hand, and Alan and I have talked about this, and we'll be doing some work this coming year on principles. I mean, he started with uh, looking at the core values of. Uh, emotional sobriety what are the 12 core values and we've played with that and wordsmithed out some things which are really the principles underlining the values connected to the steps as well as self-esteem um, and and this year we're going to actually formally look at uh, principles uh, we talk about practice these principles in all our affairs and there's a lot of lists of principles but there's there's nothing that's really been hammered out in i do believe a both from a spiritual discipline and from a psychological discipline that that really has a, a sense of um, integration and authenticity. And that's my project for this coming year as the result of seeing that emotional sobriety is about identifying the principles and being in alignment with those principles and my life will work. Mm -hmm. Cool. Well, that's really great. I'm excited about that project. I just think that that's, that, that's what I say I love about what we do here, what I do with you, Herb, what we do on Thursday night is, you know, I get so excited and stimulated. The discourse we have, the sharing of knowledge about these things and the discovery together. You know, what I've really loved about this, Tom, with you too this year, we've discovered so many things together along this journey. We have. It's really been we something. Have. For me, this year stood out on a more personal basis, and I could kind of probably divide it between personal and professional. But on a personal basis, this year, I've done more work on digging into the grief and what the loss of my father when I was 11 years old meant to me. Mm -hmm. And, you know, talk about those strings, Herb, that, you know, mm -hmm. I, I thought, it you know, that was like one of those one and done. I grieved that I moved on. Right. Well, mm -hmm. hello. Mm -hmm. You know, from the, you know, I've been in therapy this year with a very very capable therapist and um she just keeps my feet pressed to that fire <laughs> every time I, I talk about something she brings it back and by you know i am seeing so much the depth of that experience mm -hmm. and how it has just had these ripple effects throughout my life mm -hmm. i get goosebumps about it i mean Mm -hmm. all the way to even choosing to become a psychologist. Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, one of the experiences I had is that no one ever asked me how I felt about my dad's death. Mm -hmm. And secretly inside, I said, I don't want anybody to suffer without somebody saying, hey, tell me what's going on. Mm -hmm. What are you experiencing right now? What's it like for you to be with that pain that you're in? And what was that loss? What did that mean to you? Mm -hmm. I mean, it's... It, <laughs> that's a great you know, insight isn't it i mean i suffered in silence for yeah. so and look that's when i saw my 50 dad years 
that's what I saw my dad do, Herb. He, yeah. he was mm-hmm. dying over a year and a half with cancer. Mm-hmm. Once did he ever talk about the, the terrible pain that he was going through, not just physical, yeah. but the emotional, spiritual mm-hmm. pain mm-hmm. of a man who loved his family right. was going to be exiting right. well before his time. Right. So that on a personal basis has been, you know, very, a lot of challenging work. I mean, I've cried more in therapy this year sure. than probably all the times I've cried before. I mean, you know, and so that on a personal basis, that's meant a lot to me is to really see the power of these forces in my life. Right. And to be aware of them and how they show up. And Alan, I was—I just want to say to that too, because it's, it's an awareness I just had about this with you. Is is not only you know I I, I love the insight about you become a therapist in, in at least in part because of your father and and but the other piece about that is because because I think of this because my father was such a wonderful teacher to me as a anti role model. Uh, you know, it's, it's like, and, and he was the anti-role model for self-compassion. It's like, I, I say he was the greatest teacher of self-compassion for me, the importance of self-compassion because he lived and died without it. And, and, and he, you know, he lived in hatred of himself and, and, uh, and I, and I determined somewhere in there to never do that. You're that way too, because not only are you going to always be, you want to be sure that somebody asks somebody who's suffering what's going on. Your dad didn't didn't know how to take care of himself. He didn't know he didn't know what to do. He didn't know how to express himself. You're not that man. You are absolutely not that man. You are going to take care of yourself as well as as you take care of so many others of your of your colleagues and friends and of your patients. You take care of your your, your family and you take care of yourself as well. You do and not had, deal I had, yourself I out. I nudging by that Herb and my sponsor Tom about mm-hmm. I think about three years ago said, "Look, Alan." you meet and you talk to, you know, 30, 40, sometimes 50 patients in a week, let's say. Mm-hmm. And, and where are you taking your stuff? What are you doing with yeah. all that? Yeah. You're sitting, you're right in the trenches with people that are dealing with a lot of pain, a lot of suffering. What are you doing to take care of yourself? And I realized, you know, I, I'm a phony. Mm-hmm. I'm telling everybody the importance of taking care of themselves. I wasn't doing it. Mm-hmm. You know, I practice a program and stuff like that. And I, I embrace that, but this is a deeper work for me. And so, yeah. you know, it, I, I needed a little help from my friends to say, well, but you, we talked, yeah. you and I've talked about that in our old workshop. That's we used to call true. it, I call it the hypocrisy principle, which is, right. which is, you know, I say to everybody that's in a training with me, it's like you on a regular basis, you drive home at night thinking, how am I doing with the things I'm teaching others? And right. when I, when I tell them, I think I said, I think I said this the first time when you and I were presenting together, I, what I tell them is, is if you, and if you answer yourself that you're doing just fine with it, then you better look again. Cause you're full of shit. You know, well, we're, we're not always just fine. You, it, it could be a belief, but what are you doing with it? Watch your yeah, feet. It's, I mean, it's look, like, I believe in therapy <laughs> and, and Herb, Herb would say to me, well, are you in therapy? <laughs> I'd say, yeah. all right, all right. I get it. I get right. it. I get it. I mean, it's because yeah. it's that thing. If I believe it, you know, are you going to go eat a chef's cooking? Who's not? No. You know, I remember old guys in AA saying, you know, the, if you're worried about how long you've been sober, it's whoever got up first in the morning. And it's not always that clear cut, but sometimes it is. So from a professional basis, and then we'll wrap this up. And mm-hmm. we, it, it's, of course, connected to my personal experience. But the, the, the real 
thing that stands out for me this year is curiosity. Hmm. It's what Herb was saying a minute ago. I really see the importance of curiosity in emotional sobriety. It doesn't take place unless I become interested in myself in a different way and curious mm-hmm. about what's going on and curious about what can I do to experience a greater degree of freedom to develop mm-hmm. a consciousness that would really lead me because I realize that that's something I've always wanted. It really mm-hmm. was behind my first drink. I drank and I felt free and it worked. Yeah, I mean, yeah. but it came with a hell of a price tag. Mm-hmm. And now, you know, there's a way to develop this, which also comes with a price tag. Look, you know, what did Bill say? It's a simple program, but a price must be paid. Same thing is true with emotional sobriety. You know, mm-hmm. it's it's going to create a freedom, but it will pay a price. You will pay a price. Mm-hmm. You will be more alive than you've ever been. You will feel things more than you've ever felt them. You will show up for your life in a very different way. And I think that that's great and exciting. And I, I, I hope that we've helped uh, some of you, our listeners, you know, to walk that journey a little bit better this year stick with us we'll be around next year yes we will we'll see you in 2023